This morning's first reading from God's Word and Scripture comes to us from the 133rd Psalm. We already had our introit based on this Psalm. We already had our children's sermon based on this Psalm. Now listen to what the Spirit is saying to you from the original source. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of John, the 17th chapter, verses 20 through 26. Listen to what God is saying to the church. I ask not only on behalf of these, but on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these that you have sent me, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The sticker says, you can certainly try. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I will be honest, this is not the week I was expecting when I started planning this sermon. I had thoughts about the Greek, about verb tenses and grammar and word choices, the kind of heady stuff that's catnip if you're a Bible nerd like me. And the question primarily as I saw it was how I was going to make all that parsable. And then this week happened. 
And instead of asking myself what these verses revealed about the nature of God and time and the narrative structure of John, I suddenly found myself sitting with this prayer of Jesus's, wondering what it might have to say to us about the tidal wave of fear and anger and grief and sorrow that came crashing down on so many of us this week. What do we say to the world in light of such evil and senseless tragedy? What do we say to each other? I don't know. I'm not sure anyone does. But our text today reminds us that as Christians, it's not what we say. It's what we do and who we are that matters. It's what we represent. So this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a prayer. We meet Jesus today at the end of a prayer, a high priestly prayer, a prayer in which Jesus summarizes all that he has done in his ministry and speaks candidly to the disciples and with God about what is coming next, the darkness, the breaking. Immediately after this, in John's story, we will be plunged into the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and nothing will be the same. In an instant, the disciples' worlds will change. Life will feel like death. Grief will overwhelm. Fear will swell and threaten to overtake them. They are hovering at the edge of an apocalypse, and life is about to be a whole lot harder. And so Jesus prays for them, and he outlines what they are to do next. To carry on his work, to show God's love to the world. But more than that, he prays for us. And he makes it clear that the task he gave to the disciples in John 17, he is not giving only to them, but also to us. Generations of Christians, including us, to make God known in the world, which is to say, to make God's love known. But how does that work in practice? What evidence do we have that we're different, that we offer something else, something new, something worth hoping for? The evidence, our text tells us, will be found in our unity. Here at the cusp of the end of the world, Jesus gives the disciples, and by extension, us, unity. Unity, which is not, as it turns out, the same as togetherness or assimilation or conformity or reconciliation or even solidarity. Unity is not some milk toast plea for us all to just get along, because all those attitudes and ideals are human, and they're not enough. They fundamentally rely on people consistently setting aside their own self-interests and sense of self-preservation for the good of someone else. And time and time again, they leave us far too short of their optimal result to be worth the investment. Unity is, I think, for humans, an impossibility of imagination. 
it's beyond us. Humans unify against the other. The thing we tend to think of as unity more often turns out to be variations on factionalism. Poet and author Cole Arthur Riley pointed this out succinctly in a recent Black Liturgies post, where she said that calls for unity should not come at the expense of the vulnerable. How can you become one with a person who will not acknowledge or relent in their torment of you? That is not unity. That is annihilation. So when Jesus prays for our unity, it's important to remember that unity is not a you thing. It's not a me thing. It isn't something we can manifest simply by wanting, because without Jesus, we don't even know what unity is. Unity is a gift from God. More than that, unity is of God. Only God, the triune, the complete, the three-in-one, really knows about unity. It is so far beyond our comprehension that we literally needed God, God's self, in Jesus, the Word made flesh among us, to explain it to us, to model it for us, to lay it out, to give it to us as a gift, so that we could even begin to understand that which is so wholly incomprehensible to us. Unity offers us a glimpse of the divine, and a model for relationality so complete in its equality of persons and so committed to mutual love and self-emptying that the needs of all involved are met. Or, more accurately, that there ceases to be need. That the very idea of need is irrelevant because it does not exist. And because we cannot even imagine such a thing without Jesus. It means that when we, as the church, are unified, when we as Christians seek unity, we can only ever be doing it through Christ. The thing that undergirds the love we are called to practice in the world is a unity not of our own making, but of and through God. My brother and I are on different pages about a number of things. We don't agree politically. We have different opinions about some things that are going on socially. We certainly don't always agree theologically. And if it was left to us in the realm of human disciplines, I think as we got older we would find that there was little we had in common. And yet, we are both seeking God. And sometimes, we seek God as a way of seeking each other, because we are both convinced that in the seeking of God, we might find common ground. Not made of our own accord, but facilitated by the sincere belief that the person on the other end of the phone line cares as deeply about their faith as we do about ours. And that by being curious about God, and what the other person finds so compelling about God, we might also find each other. Unity is a process, and that process will be hard. 
There will be days when it all makes sense and the stars align. And there will be days when it feels like the world is ending or has ended and we don't want to get out of bed. And Jesus, knowing this, prays that we may have unity. He gives us to each other. More than that, he gives us to each other and then tells us to go find more. To draw the circle wider. To come together when the news is bad and the light is waning, when the doubts are large and the ritual is empty. To notice who is around us and who is missing. And to believe that every one of us is important. That the unity is not complete without the missing ones. Because we are the church. We are the stewards of a light shining in a darkness. A light that cannot be overcome, even when it seems most improbable that it will remain. We are a witness of God's love in action. God's hands and feet in the world, and our collective actions are different because they're not grounded in self-interest. Primarily, they're grounded in Christ which means we can be wildly different kinds of people, the most unlikely of coalitions, and not let those differences stop us. Because our unity is found in the ways we meet each other in Christ. We are the church, called to keep showing up, being uncomfortable, and reaching out to a world that does not understand. Offering a light that exposes the lies the darkness whispers in our ears, that we are all alone, that our differences are the most important things about us, and that there is no hope of anyone else valuing us, seeing our needs, or believing in our worth. Reverend Eugene Peterson, Peters Peterson asks, how do we cultivate a spirit that's open to the reality that we don't always get to shape the world around us? but that believes we are promised that we will have connection, that we will have relationship, even when we don't understand how that's possible. Well, we know it's not going to be easy. Jesus is clear that the unity we've been given is not a one-time quick fix. It's a process. And it's one that happens not just over the course of our lifetimes, but also the lifetimes of the church that has yet to come which can seem daunting at first, but I suspect is actually good news. Because it means that there is a future. This is not the end, despite the best efforts of everything around us to convince us otherwise. We are called to love the world as God loves the world, to reveal a love to the world that will require us to come out and get uncomfortable, and to believe that this calling is for everyone, now and in the future, because no one is beyond God's love. As long as there is a world, unity will be a work in progress. And that can be hard when it feels like the world is ending, or has ended, or could end at any moment, when all we want is comfort and wholeness and peace, and not to feel so alone. We need each other. And scripture promises that if we seek God, we will, at the very least, find each other. And in our togetherness, God will be there as well. 
In her book, Listening for God, the Reverend Renita Weems writes about a time in her life when it felt like God was silent and everything was kind of on autopilot, like she was just going through the motions of her faith with little joy and little hope. And reflecting on the interplay of unity and the church in that season, she writes, I catch myself at times kneeling on Sundays and not remembering when or how in the world I managed to get out of bed, dress myself, come to church, and get through three-fifths of the service without even thinking about it. But I'm grateful to have a place, some place, any place, regardless of denomination, where I can go intuitively, without thinking, for no other reason than its doors are open and there is room for one more. And I'm thankful for that raggedy community of people who wait there to help me out of my coat and escort me to a seat where I may sit, think, sing, and kneel until it comes back to me what is so sacred about sitting, thinking, singing, and kneeling with others. Some of us are probably in that three-fifths place this morning. We got up, we got dressed, and we came because we said we would, or we thought we should, or maybe we hoped something different than all that had come before this moment would happen, or possibly just out of force of habit, with little hope at all. And we're being slowly crushed by the weight of what feels like being all alone. If that's you, Welcome. We're so glad you're here. This would not be the same without you. Some of us want action. We want people to join us, to speak up, to speak out, to say that what has happened is not acceptable. We're tired of thoughts and prayers and empty platitudes. We desperately want to believe that someone else, someone utterly unlike us, is also willing to take a step towards the better, towards something safer, towards that which might facilitate the thriving of all. But we're worried we might be the only ones. We too worry we might be all alone and that our desires are founded on a baseless hope. If that's you, welcome. We are so glad you're here. This would not be the same without you. Unity is a process, and it's going to be hard. But it starts with showing up, not only on Sunday mornings, but in our everyday lives. It starts with showing up. It starts with reaching out. It starts with noticing who's missing and inviting others to join us, with cultivating curiosity about who the other person is to God and who God is to them. It starts with sitting and thinking and singing and praying. It starts with volunteering at a feeding program. It starts with going to that march. It starts with making that phone call or texting that person and beginning that conversation for the millionth time. Not because we believe we can change things on our own, but because we know we can't. Not alone. We need each other. We need unity. And we can do what needs to be done despite our differences and disagreements of politics or theology or background or experience because we know the thing that unifies us is not our similarities, but who we are to God 
a God of life, a God of light, a God who has promised us a future that is bigger and richer and fuller than anything we can imagine, a future that requires all of us together in unity. May it be so. Amen.